16 tonight. So, 1 Thessalonians and chapter 2. And Paul writes to the Thessalonians. For you remember, brothers, our labour and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Why we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and drove us out, and displeased God, and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins. But wrath has come upon them at last. Amen. I think this uh, letter, certainly in the passages, the passage that we have before us, and that some of which we looked at last week, shows Paul's very tender care for these believers at Thessalonica. Or Thessalonica. It's a church, as uh, you recall, that was established on his second missionary journey. We have the detail for that in Acts 17. It's, it's an amazing, uh, uh, amazing work of God that occurred in, in Thessalonica. Um, we'd have read together, you'd have read together, I wasn't there at the time, but I'm sure you've read it many times uh, in chapter 1 how Paul writes how the word was received and the amazing transformation that the word of God had in their lives. You know, if we were to turn to Acts chapter 17, we would just see there the account um, of um, Paul's journey there. In fact, let's just let's just turn to that for a little bit. I don't want to be too tedious, or uh, even more so than I normally am. But um, turn to Acts chapter 17 and just remind ourselves of what happened there in Thessalonica. You might remember Acts 17, it says, uh, well, Paul and his little team uh, arrived there, verse 2, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. 
And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So there's the result of God's word being preached in Thessalonica. It's it's, uh, truly amazing, isn't it? But if we read on, uh, verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. And so all that happens, uh, just for the sake of time, verse 10. After this, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And then we get to verse 11, that's a a verse which many of us remember, the Bereans, uh, because they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And there's a great example for us, of course. And what happens, well, we remember verse 13, the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea, and they came there agitating and stirring up the crowds. And again, Verse 14, then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. We might remember then that Paul goes to Athens, and we have uh, that in the rest of chapter 17. Silvanus, or Silas and Timothy, have remained in Berea. Later on, we read in verses 15 to 16 of Acts 17 that they join uh, Paul in there, of course, uh, join them. In, uh, in that place uh, but we will see that Timothy was dispatched now again let's just turn to First Thessalonians and we'll keep there if you look at chapter 3 which we'll get into next week Lord willing remember um, as Paul writes to the Thessalonians they were willing verse uh, 1 of chapter 3 they were willing to be left alone behind at Athens and we sent Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in the faith. So we've gone from Thessalonica to Berea to Athens and Paul with such a concern to how is this very young church uh, getting on sends Timothy back and that I mean Paul it would really seem has only been in Thessalonica for three weeks and the word of God has been preached there. It almost seems Uh, you hesitate to use the word unbelievable but the impact that the word of God has had in that time is truly amazing truly amazing over that time he sends Timothy back how has it gone and if we read in Acts uh, 18 we see Paul goes to Corinth and later uh, Timothy arrives in Corinth and tells Paul this is how it's gone this is how it's all going this is how it's going in Thessalonica and as a result This is the letter that we have, this first Thessalonian letter. So the the assembly, the church at at Thessalonica, has not been in existence for that long when we have this letter. I mean, maximum, maximum, uh, uh, 12 months. I would suggest a lot less than that. And Paul writes to them. So I think it's always handy or useful for us to bear that in mind when we read this letter. To think here is a very young church and think, wow, look at the progress they are making. 
um, is a church that seems very much to focus, worse focused, on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, Paul didn't write in chapters, uh, as all verses, uh, but in our Bibles, every chapter in First Thessalonians ends with something about the coming return of the Lord Jesus Christ. All five chapters end with a note about that, the coming return of the Lord Jesus. So we can see uh, that the Word of God has an amazing impact in this place in such a short time. And in our section tonight, I want to just uh, bring it into two, uh, two little parts, really, as we look at that, to consider how the Gospel, the Word of God, impacted Paul and his team to act as they did. We'll, we'll see that, how the Word of God impacted Paul and his team, or the, how the Word of God impacts those who teach God's Word. And then in verses 13 to 16, we'll think how the Word of God impacted those people at Thessalonica, those people who were in a culture uh, that had so many idols, so many philosophies, but the Word of God comes in and transforms them um, completely. So that's how we're going to look at that tonight. The impact of God's Word. And we see then, uh, just as we'd ended last week, um, in verse 8 of First Thessalonians 2, the tender heart of Paul for these people. He hadn't been with them long. It really does seem only three Sabbath days, so sort of three weeks. You, know, you could edge it a little bit longer, but hardly any longer. But he said, you have become very dear to us. The word there is beloved, and that is, uh, uses the word agape, uh, that word which so many of us know about love, that selfless and sacrificial love. This is what you had become to us. There was that tender heart, there was that pastoral heart that Paul had for the people of God at Thessalonica. He had earlier, as we thought last week as well, used the picture of a nursing mother, verse 7, chapter 2. We were gentle like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So we get the picture there, don't we, uh, of how a mother, or a good mother, should be with her children. Paul says that is the same type of affection and care and love that we had for you. And we see that the truth of that in Paul's actions. We see the truth of that in Paul's actions. It wasn't just some sort of vacuous, emotional statement. Oh, you've become very dear to us. You know, someone could write that in a card. And it doesn't cost much to write that, does it? But we see that Paul and the others had a great heart for the believers there because of their actions. So the Word of God had had such an impact in Paul's life that he goes on, on these journeys, of course, but as we see it in relation to tonight, it truly has an impact on how he looks and how he conducts himself um, amongst the Thessalonians. You know, the, that how dear they were is backed up by the conduct that he had amongst them. He wasn't just a detached person from them. He wasn't the person who had just been parachuted in to give a few messages on a few Sundays and out again. He was a person who had lived, who lived amongst them, as we'll see, worked amongst them, shared with them selflessly and sacrificially 
so that they might have their greatest needs and their greatest good met. And of course that is salvation in Jesus Christ and to enjoy that salvation and to be more conformed to the image of Christ. And we see firstly this then. We see this. Remember our labour and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. Paul here is referring to his physical work by which him and the others earned finance so they could support themselves. You know, everyone needs uh, money to live. You know, that's how the world functions um, so we can have food and whatever else we might need. Now Paul had the right to be supported in, in that place. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, again, we don't need to turn to it, but you might remember there that he speaks about the right of an apostle to be supported. You know, do not muzzle the ox. And pictures are drawn like that. He says, well, God isn't just speaking here about animals. They would have in this picture how um, those who preach the gospel might live by the gospel. So there was a right to be supported. But Paul didn't want to be a burden to those at Thessalonica. And so what do we see? As well as teaching God's word, and we'll think about the intensity of that later on as he speaks how every one of you we went to. He says, where is a labour, a strenuous energy exerted, and a lot of toil, night and day. Night and day. So that's what they did. And they did that for financial reasons so that they might not be a burden to those whom they worked amongst. Now, it is true also as well that he did receive support. He received it from Philippi. We know that because he, when he writes the letter to the Philippians in chapter 4, verse 6, he commends them. You can see he says this, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. So he did receive uh, financial help. He says to the Philippians, no one else did. No one else helped me in this, but you did. So there was that as well. And Paul labours not wanting to be a burden. I found it interesting that he did that. And in God's providence, in God's providence, as it works out later on, if we get to, if the Lord tarries, that we get to Second Thessalonians, we'll see there in Second Thessalonians that he, you might remember that in chapter 3, he admonishes some of them, and he tells them in, in quite direct language in verse 6 of chapter 3, Second Thessalonians, to keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness. Okay, walking as a brother who is not working and um, he's relying on others it would seem not who is walking in idleness and not walking according to the tradition that you see from us and then Paul in the second letter to the Thessalonians draws upon himself as an example not with any arrogance 
you also know how you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labour we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to you. So in the very providence of God, Paul's not working serves as a great illustration later on when he writes to the Thessalonians and urges those to work, and if anyone doesn't, is idle, and uh, to not associate with such a brother. And so we see his how dear the Thessalonians were in his earnest toil for them. He laboured sacrificially so that he might not be a burden and he might preach the gospel, the word of God, to them. You say, well, okay, so where do we fit into that? Where do we fit into that? Where's my place in this pit? Where's the application for me here then? Well, well, I would say none of us here are apostles, I can tell you that for certain. Um, And not all of us are preachers. But all of us have been impacted, I trust, you have, by the word of God. The word of God. And if the word of God, the gospel, has impacted us as individuals and as an assembly, then we should be also engaged in enabling people to hear the word of God with some labour as we are called to do. And that could be financial giving, and it can well be financial giving, to provide resources or to help people who might go out and share and preach the word of God of God. So we we are co-laborers with those who are sent out. So if we're if we've got desire to see people come to Christ and to grow in Christ, then the resources that God has given us and what He has enabled us to have can be used for that purpose. So there can be that selfless and sacrificial giving of ourselves in that. But it's also how the word of God impacted Paul as well in the conduct. And he calls in verse 10, them, all of them, as you see, you are witnesses, and God also, so there's no higher witness than God who knows all things, and he can say this with a confidence, all of you witnessed how we lived. The word of God impacted our conduct and he reminds them that they amongst them live this type of these type of lives holy righteous and blameless you he could say were witnesses to the life that we lived before you they didn't go in and abuse their positions of trust and authority Absent from their ministry was any spiritual, mental, emotional or physical abuse. There was nothing of that whatsoever. He says, I can call you to this. This is how the word of God has impacted us. And this is how we lived amongst you. So they preached the Lord Jesus Christ and they modelled the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't live sinless lives, obviously not. But he says, you can see that our lives were holy, free from any defilement at all. You know, as we read through the New Testament, we see that some of those uh, in Corinth, these super apostles, as they might have been deemed, uh, it was 
hints of sexual misconduct. And if we look through the ages, often there has been that in, in, the, in ministries. Terrible. And uh, we've seen it in, well, in the last few years as well, in international ministries. But Paul could say it was not a hint. Not a hint in any of that, in how we lived amongst you. We were righteous. We, we, we were just and fair with everyone. There wasn't favoritism or impartiality shown at all. We had righteous living, just and fair before you all. And there was blamelessness. Undoubtedly there was criticism. Undoubtedly there was mockery and reproach from outside. Possibly, uh, maybe not because he was only there for three or four weeks, uh, from inside as well. But he says there was no blame could be attached to us. That was the type of life we lived. No one could be confused of how the gospel should have an impact in people's lives. So they preached it and they lived it by God's grace as they were enabled to do. Now I'm sure I've heard the phrase and I've heard it refuted enough, you know, uh, preach the gospel wherever you go, if necessary use words. And we know that's a a, a nonsense because that's all it can be. The gospel is a word proclamation. It has to be that. But the gospel has to be backed up really with living that exemplifies the gospel to give it authenticity and to give it integrity and Paul said well that is how we were amongst you and you remember now this time in verse 11 the the picture is not of the mother it's of the father there's a picture of a father with his children so he's used one as the mother with the tender care and now he goes and says well our conduct was like a father with his children. So if you want a little picture of how fathers are to be with their children, uh, then we're now going to get it. But it's also a picture of how spiritual fathers should be with their children. So who does that apply to? Who does that apply to? Well, it applies to any group that you might be leading. Okay. So yes, it does apply to fathers with their children. It certainly applies uh, to elders and those who would teach. And it certainly applies at any point. You have a Sunday school class. You lead any a dorm at camp or anything like that, whatever ministry. How are you to be with those who are in your care for some place of time as a spiritual father to those with you? Well, you'll be concerned for their growth for their coming to Christ and their growth in Christ. And so that is what Paul said, that was what we were with you. And he uses again three words. So in the conduct there was three words, holy, righteous and blameless. And here we have it, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged and charged you. And so here it is then, it's interesting, before we just delve into these terms a little, how he writes, we were with each one of you. Seems quite individual, doesn't it? Seems quite individual there. And some might then say, I remember just reading one commentary, it seems if Paul visited all these people individually, he must have been there for more than three weeks. You know, how is that possible? But, well, I don't know. The scriptures only record just three weeks, and Paul writes, I was there. This is a very individual term. We exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you. So what do those terms have the idea of? What picture do we get? What 
picture do we get that a spiritual father uh, with his children, how should he be acting or how should the person who is in that position be acting? Well, the idea of exhortation comes from drawing alongside. It's the word which is used of the Holy Spirit, a paraclete, uh, an advocate who draws alongside. So a spiritual father, or one acting in that role, will, will come alongside and direct and guide their child. And that will direct them and instruct them wisely. That drawing alongside picture that we have someone. Encouraging. Well, encouraging means in times of maybe hardship or failure, there'll be words of truth. Now, the words might be quite hard. But they'll be restorative, restorative words, to seek to restore them onto the path that they should be going. To seek to offer these words so the struggling and the burdened might go on. That individual might go on. So to exhort, to come alongside, to encourage, to draw and comfort them and to charge them to go on and that's where you're in the word well we've got the word charging there some versions have imploring and this is more here the idea of warnings about not following the course laid out for you not following the course that God wants you to have in your actions in your words in your life and the consequences of that of not doing that, imploring them and charging to go on the way that God wants you to go. And so the spiritual father, Paul says, should be involved in all of this. And he says, we were. This is how we were. You remember that. That we drew alongside you. And it seems individually to exhort, encourage and charge you with the purpose, with the purpose to walk in a manner worthy of God. So there's the end goal, if you like. What was the purpose of these three things? What should be the purpose of these things for ourselves or for you? If you're dealing with, uh, you have a group that you're given responsibility for, an assembly of God's people that you have responsibility for, well, the goal that you want for them is to be conformed to the image of Christ. Because that's God's goal for each individual, isn't it? It's God's goal for all of us, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And that is accomplished with people being exhorted, encouraged, and charged. And what was, the, what was used? Well, Paul wouldn't have got the philosophies of Thessalonica there were many competing philosophies but no it is the word of God that was used the word of God would have been used to exhort to encourage to implore or to charge so then to think rightly if they were think, not thinking correctly to act correctly if they weren't acting correctly and so the word of God comes in its sufficiency and comes to transform lives. And Paul says that was what we did, and that is what they use. We proclaim to you the gospel of God in all its work. And so, that was how the gospel had transformed Paul's life and caused him to act. And we learn from that as well. We trust. But then he says... 
into our second section uh, as we move into that how it impacted them and what we notice first of all uh, that it truly had impacted them hadn't it it was an amazing thing as we said the gospel the, the word of God had transformed these people's lives they had once been idolaters but they had given all that up and they as he writes in First Thessalonians chapter 1 they had become an example an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia your faith and God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything there were marvelous if you like trophies of God's grace abundant examples there of individuals in Thessalonica who had been transformed and Paul was so thankful for that it's where he starts off in this section isn't it we thank God constantly for this or in some versions we thank God without ceasing because they heard the word they received the word and they accepted the word of God thankfulness should of course be a part of all of our lives shouldn't it thankfulness you'll count your blessings one by one and then you'll see what the Lord has done Paul didn't sit back and congratulate himself and his team on, on their successful mission strategies or anything like that. He thanked God. That was a mark of Paul. To thank God for others and how, God's, how God was working in the lives of other people. And to pray for those as well whom he was in contact with. We see it throughout his writings Colossians chapter 1 verse 3 again don't, no need to turn he says we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you to the Colossians we pray for you and we always thank God for you Romans 1 verse 8 as he wrote to those in Rome first I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world to Timothy, 2 Timothy, chapter 1. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. And so Paul and his team, if I can use that term, were a people who spoke, were a group who spoke to the people about God. They spoke to the people about God. But then they spoke to God about the people. They spoke to God about the people. And both of those are essential. You would think it was very uh, inconsistent if I'm up here telling you about God. But I don't tell God about you. That would be massively inconsistent of me, wouldn't it? To act like that. You think, that's not, that's not right. There's something missing there for him. So Paul has a great care for the people because he tells them about God and he speaks to God about them. And he says, you changed. This is what I'm thanking God for. This is what I am thanking God for. 
that firstly, well, he says you accepted and received, or received and accepted. Now, of course, what we see first is they had to hear the word of God, didn't they? Now, we say that's, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? You know, someone's going someone's gonna, to um, um, receive and accept it. Well, they've first got to hear it, haven't they? They have to hear God's word. That was, that, was, that was the work that Paul had to do. You know, Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word. Word of Christ or the Word of God, and um, it's probably almost not necessary uh, to say it in a company like this, but uh, we'll say it nonetheless. It's always good to remind ourselves, is it not, that you know if we if people are going to come to faith in Jesus Christ, then the Word of God must be prominent and proclaimed in that ministry. And you think, well, that's that is obvious. Well, it does seem obvious, doesn't it? But you might be surprised, well, you would be surprised, I'm sure you have been surprised, when you sort of go around and have a wider look how the Word of God is not proclaimed. And so, the Word of God, in all its fullness, to be proclaimed, that people might come to faith and go on in the faith as well. So that was Paul's work, to ensure that they heard it. And it's our work as well, as far as God enables us, that people might hear the Word of God, they might read the Word of God, you know. It's why we do what we do, it's why we put literature out, it's why we have clubs, and the Word of God is said, the Word of God is proclaimed. Um, because no one can come to faith without hearing the Word of God. But here's the work of, here's what they did. They embraced it. They embraced it. And they embraced this as it truly was. Not just another philosophy from men. As he says in, in Thessalonica, Thessalonica was a big city. It was a city where there were many travellers, a major city and a thoroughfare. There'd be many different ideas coming through there, many different philosophies on different things. But they didn't put the, this what message, what Paul preached, alongside them and says, well, we'll have that one as well. We'll have that one as well. We'll just lay that aside there as well. And that's a good one. That'll serve to motivate us time by time. And I'll put some of those as posters on my wall with the other little posters I've got on my wall which help motivate me in life. No. This message they accepted was completely different. And this was God's word. This was God's word. And that is what they accepted from that. And they embraced it not as one idea amongst many but the authoritative and all sufficient and necessary word of God and despite despite the hostility what there was we read that didn't we in Acts 17 it's very hostile in Thessalonica you know the Jews uh, who there who didn't believe sort of chased Paul out almost and not content with that they come down to Berea when they know that people are becoming Christians there and, and cause discord there. There was much hostility in Thessalonica to the message of the gospel. But they believed it. Those who were there came to faith in Christ and embraced it as it truly was. But of course in all that, why is Paul thanking God then? Why is he not saying to them, you were quite bright and you understood, you know, good, excellent. No, he says... He understands that it was God who opened their eyes. And that's why he's thanking God. It's God who opens the eyes. 
Yes, the, the gospel, the word of God must always be proclaimed and understood. But unless God works in a person's life, in an individual's life, and opens blind eyes, they will never come to faith. Unless the Lord does a work and brings the dead to life, they will never feel the weight of the conviction of sin and embrace Christ. So it is a work of God to do that. And that is why Paul, or amongst why Paul is thanking God for this, that he did that work amongst them. There's a quote from Martin Luther 500 years ago. And, uh, well, we remember some of the work of Martin Luther, but he said this, I have done nothing. The Word has done and accomplished everything. I have done nothing. The Word has done and accomplished everything. Luther echoes the thoughts of Paul in knowing that it is God's work God's word, pardon me, that works powerfully in the lives of individuals and causes them to embrace Christ and then have their lives changed. And we see that such was the, the impact of God's word on them that through the persecution and hostility that they faced, they remained faithful to the word of God. Now remember, this is just a, 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 an assembly of God's people that is way under 12 months old. Way under 12 months old. But look what you see here in verses 14 and through. You suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. You know, Paul said, the word of God had an impact on you we can see that in your conduct and how you turned from idols to serve the living God. But you also suffered persecution and hostility from your own countrymen. And he draws them, draws their thoughts and draws our thoughts to say that, well, this isn't unusual. This is not unusual. Don't think you're alone in this. Because there's a tradition of this, of God's people being persecuted and having hostility shown towards them. And that is used of God for the strengthening and developing of faith. No one invites persecution to come, or shouldn't, or hostility to come. But in God's providence it does come. And it's a testing and God uses that. So faith might be strengthened and developed. And reliance on him alone might be seen and known. But he says you're in the long line of people like that. 
you know, in the, one of the commentaries, someone said, wrote these words, that they were reminded they were in the apostolic succession of persecution for the faith. And that's what Paul draws on, doesn't he? He draws, he says, you were imitators of the churches that are in Judea. And by the way, they weren't the first either because they killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets, those who'd gone before, those who went before. So God's people will suffer. In our own country that has happened, isn't it? it very, very severely. You know, you can go to St Andrews and uh, you can see there the marks in, in the street or the, uh, where it was that the people of God, some of the people of God, Patrick Hamilton like, were burnt to death. I remember, I, you know, sometimes I go in the schools and I just sort of tell people they can't believe almost that, you know, the young children cannot believe that this happened in our country. You can go to Oxford and you can see the place where they burnt Latimer and Ridley as well. And there'll be countries in this world we could go to now and see it today. We, by God's grace, have been spared that in our own country for quite some time. Quite some time. And we are thankful for that. But actually, as you look through history, it's not the norm. It is not the norm for that to occur. And it is a testing ground. And the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught that where the seed has fallen on good soil, you remember the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8, for example, in Luke chapter 8, the good soil where the seed fell and well let me just read Luke 8.15 and the seeds in the good ground are the ones who hear the word with an honest and good heart hold on to it tightly and produce fruit as they patiently endure earlier in just two verses earlier the ones in the rock are those who hear the word receive it with joy but they have no root they believe for a while in a time of testing fall away. That's the words of our Lord Jesus Christ with regard to that. And so the Thessalonians were suffering from their own countrymen. And Paul says, well, you know, that is in the, that long line. Just do, do remember that. Do remember that. But it's serious when people oppose the gospel. And it's even more serious when, as we see in verse 16 there, he speaks of the Jewish ones, they hindered us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. And he says, and so they do that, so as to always fill up the measure of their sins. You know, God is very patient. God is very patient. And often allows, it would seem, sin in an individual or a nation to go on unpunished. But here we see this a description. It sort of is like that filling up of the cup. They fill up the measure of their sins. There's a similar phrase to this. You might remember. Uh, um, trying to bring the, of course, the Amorites, and God says, "Well, don't go in the land yet, because the measure of their sin is not filled up, not filled up yet." But when they do go in, the measure was filled up, and they were to have that judgment placed upon them. And so the sin is being filled up and it gradually comes to the brim 
and then God's patience is exhausted and his wrath comes on. And so that's what Paul says. So always to fill up the measure of our sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. Now we could argue uh, in a nice friendly way uh, or debate what he means by wrath. Well, it's certainly God's wrath. What does he mean? Does he mean when the temple's destroyed in AD 70? Does he mean when there's the tribulation period on this world? Or does he mean eternal wrath? I I really don't know, to be frank. Uh, But the seriousness of it is all there, isn't it? Wrath has come upon them. He sees something as absolutely certain for them opposing the word of God. And opposing that others might hear the word of God to be saved. And so he sees the seriousness of that, but Paul's going to continue on because he knows the impact that God's word can have. So as we draw to a close tonight, we've seen the impact of God's word on those who teach and the impact of God's word on those who receive. Dwight Moody said this, The scriptures were not given to increase our knowledge, but to change our lives. And that's true, isn't it? And changes our destiny as well. May God bless his word to us. Let me pray. Father, we just come before you tonight. We thank you for an opportunity to look in your words. And uh, Father, may we not be just detached observers and hearers of it but help us lord to truly understand uh, what you are saying from your through your word and where appropriate in all places father to have that word by the spirit of god applied to our lives that we might have our lives transformed be more like the lord jesus christ and live lives pleasing to you so we do pray that we come in jesus name amen